Nora Speaks is a weekly podcast that tugs at the soul and consciousness of the Black community. With show topics such as youth empowerment, education, women's impact, and civic engagement, Nora Speaks challenges the listener to not only join the movement, but be the movement. On the show, you'll learn from insightful guests who have demonstrated capacity in these fields and more, and I'm your host, Nora Muhammad. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Nora Speaks podcast, and I am your host, Nora Muhammad. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be back with you for another exciting episode of the Nora Speaks podcast. And thank you for being a valued listener. Thank you for being a subscriber. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends, for your, with your family. Thank you for your emails and comments. Thank you for sharing it on social media. And if this is your first listen, if this is the first time that you visited the Nora Speaks podcast, welcome and come right on in. This is a podcast that is intended to improve the outcomes in the black community. As you heard in the opening, this podcast intends to tug on the soul and the consciousness of the black community, because I think that we are in need of a reawakening, of an awakening from the slumber that has allowed us to tolerate much of the negative activity, negative outcomes that we see in our community. And I am challenging myself and I'm challenging you to take an opportunity to see what you can do, see where you fit in, see what organization, what what uh, way you can participate in your community to improve our outcomes. So again, welcome to the podcast. And I am just so excited. I had the wonderful opportunity to speak at a Juneteenth event. And I have to shout out the organizers, Black and Brilliant Events team, Maisha Jones, the chief executive officer, Sherry Busby, the chief operating officer, and my dear and beautiful sister, Latasha Waters, the executive director of the Black and Brilliant Events team. And these sisters organized Juneteenth last year, which was their first annual event. And I had the privilege to be invited to speak at this year's event, their second annual. I was one of the keynote speakers, and it was a beautiful event held in Glassboro, New Jersey, an area in South Jersey. And I just honor these women for putting action behind their words. You know, there's so many of us that talk about the issues, talk about the problems, talk about what somebody needs to do. Well, these women recognize that that somebody <laughs> was them and is them. And I just uh, am just so proud of the work that they're doing to impact the community. And so I share with you in this episode, the remarks that I shared then at that Juneteenth event. I think it's relevant. I think that it aligns with what I discuss here, what we discuss on the podcast. And I want you to take and listen to it. And after you listen, you know, shoot me an email at Nora at NoraSpeaks.com. Hit me up on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter at Nora Speaks Podcast. Let me know what you think about those remarks that I shared. Now, with no further delay, here are my remarks from the 2021 Juneteenth event organized 
by the Black and Brilliant events team. Juneteenth, to consider that our people were enslaved and served over 400 long years. And when we talk about our history, when we talk about our struggle, sometimes we hear, oh, here you go with that black talk. But I don't know any other talk to talk. So I must bear witness to my experience. I must bear witness to our experience. Our priority comes to mind for me. Our priorities, what we should do. But first, I want to take a brief examination of history. We know it is Juneteenth. We know that in 1865, in Galveston, Texas, an army, a Union general, arrived June 18th and on June 19th enforced, enforced the law that the slaves would be free. It was the law, and yet there were those who created obstacles for us to enjoy that freedom. So let's talk about Abraham Lincoln and why we now have the Emancipation Proclamation. For many of us, I hope we know the history that there were Confederate states in the South who were slave-holding states that received their economic industry by using our people to work, not for minimum wage, not for 13 cents an hour, like we see now in the industrial prison complex, but for nothing. And when those states seceded from the union, those who were in government had the priority to make sure this nation stayed whole. In August 1862, as Abraham Lincoln was thinking, how could he save this union? He came up with an idea to compel those Confederate states, to compel those slaveholders to come back and rejoin the union to keep this nation whole, to keep the nation whole not to end a brutal and cruel and inhumane practice of slavery. Although the early preliminary version of the Emancipation Proclamation was shared in September, in August, I will share with you what President Abraham Lincoln wrote. <clears throat> in August, August 22nd, 1862. This is what our president wrote. My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the union. It is not to either save or destroy slavery. If I could save the union without freeing 
any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing none, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because it helps to save the union. His priority was saving the union. And when Abraham Lincoln presented his preliminary version of the Emancipation Proclamation, he gave those Confederate slaveholding states 100 days to rejoin the union. And if they did not, those slaves would be free. Now, he didn't say we were ending slavery in this nation. He didn't say we were ending slavery in Texas, in South Carolina, in Mississippi. He was trying to compel those Confederate states back to a unified union because he had a priority. And their penalty was freedom of their slaves. Now, there were Confederate states that were controlled by the union that did not have that same compulsion to free the slaves. There was slavery in New Jersey, yes. There was slavery in New York, yes. There was slavery in Maryland and Kentucky, yes. But those states were excluded. That preliminary version of the Emancipation Proclamation was to compel the Confederate states to rejoin this union. Priorities. It was not because these are people. It was not because you're destroying families. It was not because you've ripped their culture from them. You've ripped their language from them. You've ripped their religion from them. It was a priority to save the union. Here I go with that black talk. What is our priority? What are our priorities in this day? So we're gathered here, and I see these wonderful vendors. I see these beautiful people. 1865, slavery ended. We should have seen a magnificent and compelling change. George Floyd. We should have seen people treated with dignity. Trayvon Martin. We should have seen the opportunity to live and enjoy life. Breonna Taylor. So what must we do in this hour and in this day? Last year, during the year of protest, I heard a lot of talk about allies. Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, in a talk she gave, as she concluded her talk, she was addressing what the solution should be, could be, to injustice experienced by black people in this nation. And in her conclusion, she said, we need white allies. We need white allies to speak up for us. We need white allies to advocate for us. We need white allies to echo the cry, what we're saying. 
there's nothing wrong with an ally. But I say, black man and black woman, what are we going to do? I am a member of the Kansas City Democratic Committee. Politics. I'm involved in politics. That is not our answer. It can contribute to creating better conditions. We can compel our politicians, our government officials, to do better, to legislate where we can enjoy freedom, justice, and equality, but in the absence of an ally, are we just going to suffer and not do anything? What are we going to do? So I'm going to share some ideas for us to think about as we explore what our priorities are. But first, let me say this. When George Floyd happened, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, we took to the streets Eric Garner, Philando Castillo. We took to the streets and we said, no justice, no peace. We had a blackout day, but we were not spending our dollars. We were unified. But what I say is that our unity should not be a protest. Our unity is our survival. Boycott. That's what we did. We said, we're going to shut you down until you do us right. We put the energy from the pain that we experienced into our activities. Well, I say we don't have to be in pain to be unified. We don't have to be in pain to work together. We don't have to be in, in pain to express love for one another. We do not have to be in pain or have experienced some insult to our humanity to speak out and to speak for our people. Our unity should not be a protest. Our unity should be our daily behavior, a daily practice. So what I will share with you is some ideas of what we can do so that we don't have to be back again next year moaning and wailing about another black death, moaning and wailing about the loss of life taken from us by state actors, wailing and moaning by those who are not state actors, but renegades and militias taking the lives of our people. The first thing that we should do is recognize our need for group activity and group operations. Right here, these sisters put together with their thought group activity. We are here and they have brought these vendors. They have brought you as an audience to hear something and to experience something that's not just going to speak to our soul, but that involves something physical, right? Recognize the need for group activity and group operations. Second, make our communities safe and decent places to live. Yes, we have a police force in Glasgow, New Jersey. The assistant chief happens to be my cousin, and I love him dearly. And I'm grateful that he's in leadership in the Glassboro Police Department, in the Camden County Police Department. We have a Hispanic brother who leads that police department, and I'm grateful to have that brother in leadership. However, what's happening outside my door is my responsibility. Huh. What's happening outside your door is your responsibility. We must make our own communities a decent place to live for our children where they don't have to walk over trash. They don't have to walk over human trash 
or degree. We have to control our environment. When we see graffiti, when we see broken windows, it creates the idea that the people here don't care. And if the people here do not care, the politicians don't have to answer to us. Because we show that we don't care. Where we live, that is your police station. That's your territory to make clean and to make safe. And when we need the police, we want to be able to call them and rely on them to respond appropriately. But the first responsibility, it's ours. Make our communities safe and decent places to live. We also have to remember jealousy, that old character trait that started on those plantations. Now they say the Willie Lynch letter is a myth. Well, I don't know about all of that because the implementation of it is effective. Ooh, yeah. Divide the taller from the shorter, the lighter from the darker, the older from the younger, That's the male right. from yeah. the female. How? By showing favoritism to one and creating resentment for the other. Oh. Not in the slave master, but in ourselves. Remember, jealousy is an ugly, ugly thing, but it is a destructive, destructive force. As I am concluding and sharing a few more ideas with you, we have to remember, for us to be successful, we must pull our resources physically and financially. A short story. My handsome son, who was standing behind me, when he was in the public school system, I saw how he and other black boys and some black girls were being prepared for the school to prison pipeline. Something traumatic happened. The police came, and, and the traumatic part was the police coming, and their threats to me and my husband. And it was frightening because I knew the only control, the only safety my son had from the, the safety I had for my son was when he was in my bosom. But the minute he was at school, he was at the playground, he was away, I knew that that was the danger zone. I could only protect him as much as I could, but once he got to school, I didn't make those rules. And they tried to put my son and the other black boys that I saw there in that school to prison pipeline. I'm still talking about pulling on resources I was frightened. I was petrified. Because I knew the future that they had in mind for my son. Because 13 cents an hour is what our brothers and sisters make in the industrial prison complex. Another sort of plantation to make goods that they're selling. I was petrified. What did I do? I called my minister. And I told my minister what happened. And he saw the pain. And he knew that it wasn't just happening to my son, it was happening to all of our sons. My minister opened the school. The sisters, who are my close friends, who are educators, left their job at the Board of Education, left their tenureship. Excuse me, quit. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Because they believe.
believe in group operation and group activity, and they pulled their resources, their knowledge of educating black children in a way that fortifies and edifies them. And my minister opened a school. It was a plan that we had eventually. We weren't ready, or so we thought. The next semester, the next September, my sons were in the University of Islam. And now this brother will be graduating next Saturday because he resources physically and financially. And when we have the will and the love, there's nothing that we can't accomplish. This is not rhetoric. When we have the will, many of us lack the will. We want to do it when it's comfortable. We want to do it when it's cheap. We want to do it when it's easy. We want to do it when everybody's going to agree. But you got to do it when it's necessary. You got to do it when it's hard. You got to do it now. We must pull our resources physically and financially. And lastly, and lastly, our former slave master has been very, very effective from the moment they stepped on this continent and making a way for themselves. And how did they do it? They did it because they believed in unity and group operations. So let us study them and how they were able to achieve success. No, not by enslaving other people. No, not by brutalizing other people, but the principle of working collectively. Study that. They make no excuses for their failure. Republicans, Democrats, progressives, independents, libertarians, they don't agree on everything politically. But when 9-11 happened, they said, we're going to Iraq, we're going to Afghanistan. Because they had priorities, and their priority was a shared interest in preserving the nation. Our unity should not be a boycott. It should not be in response to some injustice. Our unity is the means to our survival. I want to thank you so much. My name is Noura Muhammad. I'm the host of Noura's Peace Podcast. I'm the member, a member of Muhammad's Temple of Islam, number 20 in Camden, New Jersey, under the leadership of Brother Minister Basim Muhammad. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Noura's Peace Podcast. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming at you fresh next week. And as always, if you want to learn more about me and the work that I do, visit my website, NoraMohammed.com. Or if you have a listener question, email me at info at You can also follow the Nora Speaks podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nora Speaks Podcast. I'll be sure to include links in the show notes. If this show has value to you, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with family and friends. And be sure to check out previous episodes. And remember, don't just join the movement, be the movement. Stay in peace.